So uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for our time together to look in the history of the Bible, and now we're looking at the history of the English Bible, how it's come to us in our own language, and we're thankful that we have it available to us and uh, so that we can freely read and study. We realize that makes us more responsible for your truth since we have it so readily available and we pray that uh, we will accept that responsibility and seek to obey that which we read and understand and that which we're taught so that we might bring glory to our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, we are uh, We're looking at a quiz to start off with, but it's been two weeks because we didn't meet last week, so let's see how we can do, if you can remember anything, two weeks ago. After 325, Christianity became an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. False. That's when it became a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Up until that time, it was technically illegal. didn't have sanctions. Um, Number two, Erasmus called his Greek New Testament the Textus Receptus. Remember, Erasmus was the first person to produce a printed Greek New Testament, a Latin Greek New Testament. He called it the Textus Receptus. No, he didn't, but we call it the Textus Receptus today. So Erasmus produced the first Greek New Testament, printed Greek New Testament. He didn't have many manuscripts to go on. He only had eight manuscripts. We've got thousands today, so he didn't have much information, but he took what he had. He produced a Greek New Testament in 1516, and then others fought. He produced five editions, made changes. None of, no two were exactly the same. They're roughly the same. And then others followed, Elzevar, Visa. Uh, so you had, you had others who followed, and uh, they produced Greek New Testaments, printed Greek New Testaments. They're roughly the same, some slight differences. And then in 1633, the title was given to it, Texas Receptus. So we call all those editions, printed editions, about 30 of them, up until the 1800s of the Texas Receptus. So when people talk about the Texas Receptus, the TR, that's a printed version of the Greek New Testament, though there's not one single one. They're roughly very similar. And the King James is translated. Every translation until the 19th century was translated from that printed Greek New Testament, or one of those printed Greek New Testaments, the Texas Receptus, we call it. Two, Robert Estian created our present verse divisions in the New Testament. Yes, he did. So the uh, uh, chapter divisions were invented in the 13th century by an archbishop, a British archbishop, in the Latin Vulgate. Why did he 
invent them in the Latin Vulgate because that was the only Bible in the 13th century. The Latin Vulgate in Western Europe. Everybody read Latin and could read. And they used a Latin translation called the Vulgate. And in the 13th century, he created the present chapter divisions. And we'll look tonight, when we look at these English Bibles tonight, we'll notice they don't have any verse divisions, the first ones we look at. That doesn't come until 1560, until the Geneva Bible. So at 1560, uh, 1551, he created a Greek New Testament. He's one of those Texas receptors we're talking about, one of those 30 editions. And he put in verse divisions for the first time, numbers, numbered the verses for the first time. And they eventually got their way into English Bibles in 1560. 1551, he created the Greek New Testament with it. Four, there was no complete English translation of the Bible in the Old English period. True. True. There's the Old English period. That's on your notes on page uh, 21. The Old English period, 1450 to 1150. So there was no complete English translation during that time. People who studied and went to school or went to any kind of university studied Latin. Classes were taught in Latin. They read Latin works. It wasn't much use for English or any other language, German or French or anything else. There was no Bibles. There was nothing. Europe was all Latin. There was really nothing hardly in the Middle English period, as we'll see, but nothing in the Old English in the Old English period. Five, West Scott and Hoard produced their Greek New Testament using the oldest available manuscripts in 1881. Yes, those are two well-known names. They're often demonized in King James-only circles because the Texas Receptus sort of reigned supreme from Erasmus's first edition right on through the 1500s, the 1600s, etc., but gradually, these manuscripts became got discovered, these older manuscripts. Erasmus, the, the oldest manuscript he had was from about 1,200. Most were 1,300, 1,400, 1,500. But then they discovered manuscripts from 900, 800, 700, 600, 500, 400, 300, 200. So he started using those manuscripts to produce Greek New Testaments. It kind of culminated. The first one real important was in 1881, Westcott and Hort. And that differs somewhat from the King James Version, just like we talked about in Revelation last time. Standing before the throne or standing before God. You remember that text or variation we talked about there from the King James? Uh, so this edition disagreed with the TR. And so people who are King James only hate these guys. They're, they're, they demonize them and so forth. But others have followed. I mean, we have other Greek New Testaments. Today... Um, we, we use testaments that use all the manuscripts. We use the Greek New Testaments. All right, so on page 21, we talked about the Old English period, and we were talking about the Middle English period last time that we met. And uh, there's Old English. Remember, we said that's pretty tough to read, impossible to read. It doesn't, doesn't seem like English at all. English got changed at the bottom of page 21 with the Norman conquest of England. So a Frenchman came over and conquered England. 
William the Conqueror. He became king of England, and he spoke French, and his the royal court spoke French. So naturally, French words started coming into the English language, and you had this mixture. So English is changing with Middle English. Um, not much translation going on during this period. As I see on the top of page 22, as in the Old English period, all translation work was from the Latin Vulgate. There's William the Conqueror. And now John Wycliffe. This is uh, top of page 22. So here's the first English Bible. The first complete English Bible produced by a man named John Wycliffe. Of course, you've probably heard of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, maybe. They're a group of... They take their name from Wycliffe. They're a group of translators who, for many, many years, have gone throughout the world translating the Bible into various languages, usually of primitive languages, primitive people often, you know, who don't have the Bible in their language. So uh, here's John Wycliffe. Notice uh, page 22, number 2. Wycliffe was the most eminent Oxford theologian. Now remember, this is England. This is in the 14th century, 13A, 30. All of Western Europe is Roman Catholic. The Reformation hasn't happened yet. The Reformation is a couple hundred years away, so we're still Roman Catholic. Everything is Roman Catholic here. Wycliffe is Oxford, the two leading universities, Oxford and Cambridge in England. But he began to have ideas like the Reformers, like Martin Luther did. He believed that the Bible was the rule of faith and practice. Now, that's contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church does not believe the Bible is the rule of faith and practice. The Church is the rule of faith and practice. Not not the, not the Scriptures. Scriptures are not the only authority. They're not the sole authority. The Church is over the Bible. And the Church will tell you what the Bible is. So, he, he disagreed with that because he began to study the Bible himself in the Latin. And he believed every man was responsible to obey the Bible, as I say here. And therefore, if that's true, if, you, if every person is responsible to obey the Bible, then it should be in their own language. Now, this, was a, this is a common Reformation idea in the 16th century, but here now we're in the 14th century, and this guy is, as we'll see, he's called, uh, I mentioned B here, well, the ecclesiastical staff did not want the laity to have access to the Bible lest they discovered the massive discrepancy between the lifestyles of the bishops, clergy, and those of Christ and the apostles. But just imagine, you're a person in England. You don't know anything about the Bible. All you know is what the church tells you Christianity is. You know. B, Wycliffe spoke out against the corruption of the church of papacy. He was called the morning star of the Reformation. See, he's, he's, he's ahead of his time, isn't he? He was accused of heresy by the Pope, made to appear before the Bishop of London, but he escaped trial. Eventually, he forced to retire from Oxford. He gathered around him some disciples, primarily students at Oxford, who preached the simple gospel to common people. They became known as the Lollards, apparently derived from the Lowlanders, but used in the sense of heretics. C. Wycliffe, along with a disciple named Nicholas of Hereford, produced the first complete English Bible about 1380. 
is Wycliffe's Bible. One of the oldest, maybe the original, we don't know, is in the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. Since the Wycliffe Bible was based on the Latin Vulgate, it included the Apocrypha. Remember we talked about the Apocrypha, those 14 or 15 books that were uh, produced by Jews before the New Testament era, generally in the intertestamental period. They were religious literature, remember we talked about. And uh, Jews never accepted them as scripture. And the early church didn't accept them as scripture. But as time went along, they were looked upon favorably. And we read some of them. Some of it's pretty interesting. And some of it's good good stuff. You know, it's positive, Christian, you know, it's not Christian stuff, but it's positive moral stuff. It's got moral good things to say in, in the Apocrypha. Some of it's heretical, but, you know, you got some good and bad in there. Well, as the church goes along, the Roman Catholic Church goes along, they they have, they they read the Apocrypha. People began to copy the Apocrypha, and they began to make it put it in their Bibles. And uh, eventually, we read. Remember, in the 16th century, 1546, the Roman Catholic Church added the Apocrypha to the Scriptures. Remember, the Roman Catholic Bible is larger than our 66 books. It also contains some apocryphal books. They added it because it has things like prayers for the dead in it, you know. And Roman Catholics believe in praying for the dead because they're in purgatory. you got to pray to get them out of you know, purgatory. So the, the Latin Vulgate, though it wasn't translated, originally translated with the Vulgate, eventually copies of the Vulgate started including the Apocrypha. And so his Bible includes the Apocrypha. Now what we'll notice is that the early English Bibles kept including the Apocrypha. The King James included the Apocrypha. Now we'll get to that in a moment here. A little while. But so the Apocrypha was widely read, widely known. In the Church of England, you could go to a sermon maybe in the Church of England today and hear a message from the Apocrypha. You might hear some preacher take a text. Of course, a preacher in the Church of England might take a text from the news, anything. You know, you don't know what he's going to there's conservatives in the Church of England, not too many of them, and a lot of liberals in the Church of England. So you don't know what you're going to hear from an Anglican pastor or bishop or priest or whatever. So anyway, here you have uh, Wycliffe who's translating the Bible, include the Apocrypha, because he's just translating the Vulgate. The Vulgate has the Apocryphal books mixed in there. It's a very literal translation, preserved Latin constructions. Remember, this is a handwritten Bible. So this is all handwritten, what we're seeing here. This is all handwritten. Can you imagine that? Handwriting a Bible, every word handwritten. What would that cost? A fortune, right? I mean, it would just who could afford this, right? The book of the generation, can you see that? Thank you. So, uh, number C here. Wycliffe suffered a stroke and died in 1384. Hereford and Purvey, Wycliffe's secretary, were imprisoned for a time. 
Many followers were burned at the stake with Bibles around their necks. A 1408 synod at Oxford, called by Archbishop Arundel, condemned the teaching of Wycliffe and the Lollards. These constitutions of Oxford forbade anyone to translate or even read the Bible in English or any other common tongue. It said this. Now this is a very important event, this, these constitutions of Oxford. The Holy Scripture is not to be translated into the vulgar tongue, that is English, German, whatever, nor a translation to be expounded until it shall have been duly examined under the pain of excommunication and the stigma of heresy. A law was passed by Parliament declaring that those who read the scriptures in their mother tongue without authorization would forfeit land, cattle, life, goods, and their heirs forever. So the church is not too interested in people reading the Bible in their native tongue, in English, uh, at all. And these constitutions of Oxford are going to become a big problem because... They're going to keep the Bible from being translated into English for a long time because this is a ban on anybody translating. Despite the ban, the Lollard movement and the reading of scripture scriptures continued so that Henry V took vigorous steps to silence the Lollards. The Council of Constance in 1450 condemned Wycliffe and on 260 counts of heresy and directed his body to be exhumed and cast from the consecrated ground. For some reason, the order was not carried out until 1428 when his body was exhumed, the, bo- the bones burned, and his ashes carried into the nearby River Swift. So they didn't like this guy. You know, They, they dug him up, burned his bones, threw him into the river. Let's talk about John Purvey. Purvey was Wycliffe's secretary and assistant. Around 1388, he issued a complete revision of Wycliffe's Bible in a more idiomatic English style. There's about 170 manuscripts of Wycliffe's Bible known to exist, and most of them are this edition, the Purvey edition. Here's Matthew 6. So there's nothing in this one. There's not even any verse divisions, it looks like. The words pretty much run together. Remember, this is in Middle English. Middle English, so it's not... uh, It's not too easy. On your page there, you can see from Matthew 6 what it kind of looks like. And here's uh, John 3.16 in Middle English. Now, we can read that better than Old English. We can make some sense out of Middle English. You can see that we're getting closer to modern English now in that Middle English style. All right, so that's the Old English period. The Middle English period, now we're in the Modern English period, 1475. The 1475 doesn't sound too modern, and it's not too modern. But we've got the Early Modern period, 1475 to 1780. So we're dividing into the Early Modern period, and we're now in the Later Modern period, as they say. Early Modern period, 1475 to 1780. Introduction. With the fall of Constantinople to the Turks... In 1453, many Greek-speaking scholars and New Testament manuscripts came into Europe. So remember we said, we looked at this chart before and said that when the Apostle Paul was writing his epistles throughout the Roman Empire, he wrote in Greek. Because even though the official language of the Roman Empire in the first century was Latin, most people spoke Greek. He wrote to the capital of Rome and he wrote in Greek and 
everybody could understand what he said. But that changed. By the year 300, 400, Latin dominated and Greek is no longer spoken in the West and nobody understands Greek. Therefore, there are no Greek manuscripts or no Greek Bibles floating around. And Greek gets confined to this part of Greece and what we think of as Turkey today, Asia Minor there, that area right there. It gets very confined to that area. So people in the West, people like Wycliffe, like we just talked about, Wycliffe translated from the Latin Vulgate. Wycliffe didn't know any Greek. He didn't know anybody who knew Greek. Greek wasn't, there was no knowledge of Greek primarily in the Western part of the world. So what happened? Islam in the 7th century. Muhammad, Islam, starts conquering the Middle East. Eventually comes right up to the gates of Vienna, almost, you know, moves into Europe, moves into the Balkans, uh, you know, Yugoslavia, we think of the old Yugoslavia, Serbia, and all those, Bosnia, Herzegovina, you know, there, there's uh, Islam, Islamic people there. But that map is trying to show how that Constantinople here, which was the capital of the empire, is getting squeezed. It's constantly getting squeezed because the the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Turks had an empire that lasted for 500 years, a lot longer than ours has ever lasted. I mean, they went from, you know, right up till 1914 to World War One, from 1500, 1400, for 500 years, they rule the Middle East and, and Turkey and everything around up to India up until the end of World War One, 19, until 1914. And they were part of the Axe. They were part of the, they sided with the Germans. And when, after World War One, their empire was, was dissolved. And a lot of Middle Eastern places like Jordan were created and other things like that. So they were pushing in here and they were, uh, so what happened was uh, many of these Greek-speaking people decided to flee. And they fled Constantinople and they came over to Italy first. That was just a natural way to go. And this Greek-speaking people, these Greek speakers came into Italy and then moved into Europe. We talked about Erasmus, his fifteen sixteen Greek New Testament. So by the 1500s, the late 1400s, this is 1453, by the late 1400s, Greeks, the knowledge of Greek is seeping into Western Europe, into the universities. But Erasmus himself went to Italy so he could perfect his Greek. He studied there, he went there, and stayed there. Stayed with a printer named Aldis Manius and uh, learned Greek even better than he had before, before he produced his Greek New Testament. I noticed number two, the invention of movable type printing in 1450. Remember, Wycliffe's Bible was handwritten. Now we've got the invention of printing. Three, because of the revival of learning brought about the Renaissance, translators began to consult scriptures in the original languages. Page 24. Practically all the Bibles printed during this period, we're talking about this early modern period 1475 to 1780 practically all the Bibles printed the English Bibles printed 
contain the Apocrypha except for some editions of the Geneva Bible and other Bibles where the pages containing the Apocrypha were left out by the binders. So all these English Bibles that we're going to talk about had the Apocrypha except sometimes they they left they left the uh, pages out and because they knew that they knew these Protestants didn't want the Apocrypha they'd leave it out and sell it cheaper you know but that was illegal as we'll see it was illegal to do that in England the first Bibles really to be printed without the Apocrypha English Bibles were in America 1780 in America if you lived in America in 1600 at Jamestown or Plymouth in 1620 or in the Americas in the 1700s Every Bible that you read came from England. You couldn't print a Bible in America. Nobody had the right to print an English Bible. Every Bible the Americans read was a Bible printed in England, and it had the Apocrypha in it. Five, England was one of the last countries to have a printed Bible in the common language because of a 1408 ban on Bible translation. Wycliffe, remember Wycliffe, they hated Wycliffe so bad, they had that Constitutions of Oxford, and they... They banned anybody from printing a Bible, reading a Bible. We'll put you in jail. We'll kill you and kill your children and your children's dentist. We don't really care, you know, if you if you if you read the Bible in English. You know. That brings us to William Tyndall. William Tyndall. He was the first person to translate from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. So he could do this because knowledge of Greek. And then Hebrew hadn't been lost; it was among the Jews. Uh, had come into the universities at Oxford and Cambridge and other places in England. And so he's the first person to translate from the original language. The first complete English Bible was Wycliffe's Bible. Wycliffe translated his Bible from the Latin Vulgate, first complete English Bible. But he translated from the Latin. The first Bible to trans got to translate from the original language that we know about pretty much is William Tyndale. Two, he studied at Oxford, probably Cambridge, where Erasmus had previously taught, who was calling for Bibles in the common language of the people. He hoped that the general ignorance of the people about spiritual Bibles could be corrected by a translation of the common tongue. Martin Luther had already translated the Bible into German in 1522. Remember, the Reformation starts in 1516, right? Martin Luther, 95 Theses. And so Luther has translated the New Testament in 1522 takes him quite a few years to get to the Old Testament, 1530s, but to get the New Testament, 1522. Three, Tyndall discovered that the clergy knew little about the Bible. In a debate with one, he said, if God spare my life, ere of many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou doest. Kind of a famous quote of, of Tyndall. So the average priest in the Roman Catholic Church didn't know anything about the Bible. They didn't read the Bible. There was no knowledge of the Bible. They didn't care about the Bible. It's what the church taught. It's, you know, they taught about how to do the sacraments, how to do this, how to do that, but no reading of the Bible, really. Discouraged reading of the Bible. Four, not allowed to do his translation work in England because of that 1408 ban. So he went to Hamburg, Germany, in 1524, then on to Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was, Wittenberg. It's not known if he ever met Luther, though he certainly was influenced by him. All, all kinds of people were influenced by Luther. Luther's writings were all over Europe and England and everywhere, and people were being influenced by them. Um, 
At Worms in 1526, he produced the first printed English New Testament. The first printed English New Testament. He used Erasmus's third edition of the Greek New Testament, Erasmus's Latin version printed alongside the Vulgate. And why would you look at the Latin for? If you got the Greek, why do you look at the Latin? Why do you look at that? Well, because you're trying to get all the help you can. He's not an expert. In, he's not. He doesn't know as much about Greek as I know about Greek. Now, Tyndall was ten times more brilliant, but I know more about Greek than Tyndall did. Now, how is that possible? Because we've had 500 years of study of Greek. You know, he's just at the beginning of the study of Greek. And and I, what I know is the accumulation of 500 years of study. That's a lot. I mean, people have learned a lot about the Greek language, Greek grammar, and all that that he didn't even know about. He knew a lot. He was 100 times farther than I was, but... Still, it's just we build on what other people know and so forth and accumulate. So what's he going to do when he doesn't understand something in the Greek? He looks at the Latin. Why? Because everybody knows what Latin is means. Latin has been around, the Latin Bible has been around for a thousand years. And we know what that means. People have told us. We understand what it means. That may not be right, but we know what it means. We have we understand it, you know. He looked at the German. So he looked at other things to help. To look at help and see what, and you know, when he had a, when you have a word in Greek that you don't know, you don't know what it means, a plant or an animal. You say, what is this animal? What is this Greek word for this animal, or this Hebrew word? You know, if you're doing the Old Testament, well, you look at the Latin because everybody knows what the Latin is. Latin is well understood language, so that's why he looked at these other things. Um, so he used all these. Of the 3,000 printed copies, only two are extant. So we have two copies of his 1526 New Testament. One was purchased by a British library for a million pounds, over a little over a million pounds in 1994. So it's probably worth more than a million pounds today, and so forth. You can see that the New Testament, as it was written, and I think it calls to be written by I can't remember to whom something can't be at all. Um, here's his uh, introduction to the Gospel of St. John. In the beginning was the Word and that word was with God, and God was that word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it, and without it was made nothing that was made. Um, this is a 1536 edition. This is one of those woodcuts, remember? That's how you did pictures carved out on wood a scene and put in the press and we got those pictures. Now notice there's no uh, there's no verse divisions there in this. There's paragraph divisions here. This is Ephesians. 
but God, which is rich in mercy, uh, though uh, so great a love wherewith he loved. Trying to read that, uh, that Gothic print there. That's his uh, 1536 edition. Later on, here is the Epistle to the Romans. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostle, put apart to preach the gospel of God, which he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So very similar to the King James, as we'll see. Number five, his New Testament was smuggled into England where authorities attempted to burn as many copies as possible. But the money that went to buy copies for burning was used to print more. The cost of Tyndall's New Testament was about two and a half shillings, about five days' wages for a brick mason. Sir Thomas More, later Henry's Lord Chancellor, attacked Tyndall's New Testament primarily because he failed to use the proper ecclesiastical terms. Tyndall translated congregation instead of church. So we don't have that controversy today. The word ecclesia, ecclesia, we translate it as church, but it means congregation or assembly. But when he translated congregation, it kind of lost its uh, ecclesiastical sense. The church, the Roman Catholic church, you know, rather than just a local congregation. So, you know, they weren't happy about that. He used the word senior or elder instead of priest. Now, here's where the Latin Vulgate went wrong because, you know, the word is, the the word in Greek is elder, presbuteros, but they translated priest, and that's not the word for priest. There's a word for priest, but pastors like Pastor Larry, are never called priests. They're called elders. They're called uh, bishops. They're called pastors, but they're never called priests. But in the Latin Vulgate, they, had trans- they, they translated that priest because they were priests, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church. And so they weren't happy about that. They didn't like the word love instead of charity. I mean, it's hard to... Charity had, had sort of connotations of ecclesiastical work, of good works... Uh, and penance, repentance instead of penance. Penance. Remember, the Roman Catholic Church believes in penance, and we know that the word, uh, Greek word, metanoeo, means to repent, to change your mind, change your direction. It doesn't mean to go around and do penance, and, you know, make sacrifices and do things, good works uh, for your salvation. He also had anti-Catholic notes in the margins. In the Exodus 36, 5 through 7, where the Israelites are asked not to bring any more offering for the building of the tabernacle because they had already contributed too much, Tyndall said in the margin, when will the Pope say ho and forbid an offering for the building of St. Peter's Church? Never until they have all. This refers to the selling of indulgences. Remember, this is what Martin Luther was concerned about. They were selling indulgences and in order to finance the billing of, of uh, St. Peter's Church in Rome. And he was upset about that. So he had these anti-Catholic notes. He also translated from the uh, 
from the Old Testament, as we'll see, did some Old Testament work. Uh, he's got a note here about this is a good text for the Pope. <laughs> so he's got all kinds of notes like that around anti-Catholic notes. Well, people wouldn't like that. I mean, the ecclesiastical authorities. This is the Roman Catholic Church, remember, in England. The Reformation has not reached England in uh, 1516. Notice on page 25, number 7, Tyndall issued a revision of his New Testament 1534, another in 1535. He also translated portions of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Jonah, Joshua through Second Chronicles, and he, he actually published those. Now those become very important because we're going to see these next Bibles that come after him, their translations of the whole old that they, they have the whole Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. But they don't translate from the Hebrew because Tyndall knew Hebrew, but the people who followed him right away, as we'll see, didn't know Hebrew. They used some of his translation. Notice he translated the Pentateuch, Jonah. Joshua through 2 Chronicles. Before he could complete the Old Testament, he was kidnapped by agents of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V from the pre-city of Antwerp, prison, in prison near Brussels from May of 1535 until the following October. While in prison, he wrote a letter in Latin to someone in authority, probably the Marquis of Bergen. Here's his actual letter that, uh, in his handwriting that he wrote here. But it's a very compelling letter. Listen to what he says. He says, I believe, most excellent sir, that you're not acquainted with the decision, not unacquainted with the decision reached concerning me, on which account I beseech your lordship, even by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to pass the winter here to urge upon the Lord Commissary, if he will deign to send me from my goods in his keeping a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head, being troubled with the continual catarrh, which is aggravated in this prison vault. A warm coat also, for that which I have is very thin. Also cloth for repairing my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. The shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen shirt of mine, if he will please send it. I also have with him leggings of heavier cloth for overwear. He likewise has warmer nightcaps, and I also ask for leave to use a lamp in the evening, for it's tiresome to set alone in the dark. But above all, I beg and entreat your excellency, your, uh, your, your, entreat your clemency, I'm sorry, earnestly to intercede with the Lord Commissary that he would deign to allow me to use of my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew lexicon, and that I might employ my time with that study. Thus, likewise, may you obtain what you most desire, saving what it further, saving that it further the salvation of your soul. But if before the end of winter a different decision be reached concerning me, I will be patient and submit to the will of God, to the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, my Lord, whose spirit may ever direct your heart. Amen. These men really suffered to bring us the Bible, didn't they? Amazing, amazing what they went through. But he's talking about the Old Testament because he translated part of the Old Testament, but not the entire. Well, we saw this picture before, but Tyndall was his woodcut. Was convicted as a heretic and burned at the stake on October the 16th, 1536. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. What Tyndall probably did not know 
was that some months before his death, Henry VIII had allowed a version of the Bible, which was largely Tyndall's own work, to be circulated in England, Coverdale 1535 Bible, as we'll see. His version of the New Testament provided the basis for all English Bibles until the 20th century. Here's an estimate you commonly read. 80% of the King James New Testament is from Tyndall by way of other later translations. So here's Tyndall in John 3.16. So, we're going to be talking about these English Bibles... But I've got a line there between Wycliffe and Tyndall. Wycliffe was the first complete English Bible. But it has no bearing on the Bibles that follow. Wycliffe was a translation of the Latin Vulgate. It didn't influence what comes now. Everything that comes now builds upon everybody. There's no copyright laws in those days. Well, there's, there's no, not exactly copyright laws. Uh, and what happens is is the Bibles we'll see just build upon each other. So people use Tyndall's work, they use Coverdale's work, they just they just use each other's work, and there's a direct line, and they're very similar. They make changes, but we start with Tyndall, but not we. There's no connection to Wycliffe's Bible in our English Bibles today. That brings us to Miles Coverdale, uh, the next Bible we see, 1535 Coverdale's Bible is dependent upon Tyndall because he used Tyndall. He used Tyndall's work. So here's Miles Coverdale. He was a graduate of Cambridge, an Augustinian monk who left the order due to the influence of Reformation teaching. So Luther's teaching, 1516, and other reformers are now flooding Europe, flooding England, and having an effect. People are hearing the gospel. They're reading the Bible. Not, not the average, not most common people, but people who are studying in Oxford and Cambridge who can read and so forth. They're having great influence. <laughs> because of his beliefs, he was forced to leave England in 1528. He resided in Antwerp. He eventually became an assistant Tyndall. So while on the continent in 1535, he produced the first printed English Bible. So here it is, Coverdale's Bible, 1535. Um, here's a woodcut woodcut of the illustration of the six days of creation and uh, there's a part of it but note page 27 number 3 his New Testament was a slight revision of Tyndall's translation so he just took Tyndall's New Testament made a few changes in the Old Testament he used Tyndall's translation of the Pentateuch that's all he could get his hands on, which Tyndall had published in 1530, and Jonah, which he published in 1531. He didn't have that second. He didn't have that other section of through Second Chronicles. Since Coverdale was no great linguist with no particular knowledge of Hebrew, the rest of the Old Testament he translated from the Swiss German version of Zwingli, Leo Judah, the Latin version. Paginus, the Latin Vulgate, Luther's Bible. So, 
he, he used what he had from Tyndall that had been translated from the Hebrew, used what he had in the Old Testament. The rest of it he translated from Latin, looked at the German. You know, he just did what he had. He didn't know Hebrew, so he couldn't, he couldn't do it. That's all he could do. Here's his first kings. Again, notice no verse divisions here in this Bible. Uses this kind of Gothic type, which was thought to be the kind for the Bible, kind of type for the Bible, as we'll see. Except when they use Lord, the name Yahweh, they all caps, they change the font on that. Um, Coverdale's Bible was the first to separate the Apocrypha from the canonical Old Testament books and place them in an appendix to the Old Testament rather than being scattered throughout the Old Testament as in the Septuagint and the Vulgate. So remember those Apocryphal books we talked about. The Vulgate, they were interspersed in the Old Testament at the appropriate place. Remember there were additions to Daniel, remember? There were... uh, Additions to Esther. There were just all kinds of additions, you know, and other things. And they were interspersed in the Old Testament. He separated them out. So there's the books of the Bible. And uh, Genesis. And then the prophets here. And here's the next page. Here's the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha and the New Testament. Now you'll see this same thing throughout the rest of the Bibles that we're going to talk about, including the King James. So when these King James only people, you know, and they want the 1611, they don't really want the 1611 because the 1611 contained the Apocrypha. And they don't really want the Apocrypha. There it is, the Apocrypha between the Old and New Testament. He said he was the first one to separate it out. Number four, in 1509, Henry VIII came to the throne unexpectedly following the death of his brother Arthur. Here's Henry VIII. Yes, sorry. Uh, did they really believe that the Apocrypha was inspired when they included it in the other books? Coverdale didn't. Coverdale didn't, and none of these English translators did. So why would he do it? Why would he do it? Why wouldn't he just leave it out? Even we'll get a little later to the Geneva Bibles, which were produced by Protestants of the most radical type. <laughs> Reformed people, Calvin's, Calvin's disciples. And they include the Apocrypha. Why would they do that if they didn't believe in the Scripture? Well, it was tradition. It was just, it had been tradition to include the Apocrypha. They were highly valued religious writings. People had been reading them for a thousand years. They were familiar with the stories. If you read Shakespeare, he's he's referencing the Apocrypha throughout Shakespeare, constantly the Apocrypha. He's very familiar with the Apocrypha. So this was religious literature that people were well informed of. And as I said, some of it's very good moral teaching. So it was a tradition to include that. And so... uh, if you wanted to get your Bible accepted, especially in the England, now these guys wanted to have their Bibles ultimately approved by the king. Right now, still, 
Remember, this is 1535. Now, in 1530, soon Henry VIII will allow Coverdale's Bible to come into England. We'll get to that. But they were hoping that they could get their Bible in England. If they don't have the Apocrypha, they, they got no chance. So they include it, but they separate it out into a separate section. Um, so, remember Henry VIII? The six wives of Henry VIII? Like, remember the story of Henry VIII? So he comes to the throne, following the death of his brother Arthur. He married Arthur's widow, widow, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was a Spanish princess. So his brother died. He comes to the throne. He marries his brother's widow, Catherine. Uh, That took a special papal dispensation, since that was against church law, to marry your brother's wife. But the Pope allowed this and so forth. Henry's looking for an heir. He's looking for a son. Because in this day and age, you know, they want they wanted a king who could continue the, the 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 reign of the family and so forth. And the idea that a woman could reign was questionable. So he had a daughter, one daughter, Mary, but Henry wanted a male heir. So he sought a divorce from the Roman Catholic Church on the grounds that his marriage to Catherine was illegal. The Pope refused to grant the divorce since Catherine was the aunt of Charles V, the king of Spain and ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. So, what's going on here? Um, we haven't covered much about this, but uh, the Roman Empire collapsed. Remember? and Eventually faded away. But it was kind of revived. Revived uh, and called the Holy Roman Empire. Charles, Charlemagne, Charles the Great was the first Roman emperor. And they, this idea of, a, of an emperor, a holy Roman emperor, continued throughout Europe. And at this time, the king of Spain has the title of the holy Roman emperor. And he controls Spain. He also controls most of the Netherlands. And he controls some other lands in Europe by marriage and other things. And uh, so Catherine of Aragon... Um, is uh, the aunt of Charles V and he doesn't want his aunt divorced now normally the king of England would get what he wants normally if the king wanted to have that marriage annulled he could now they don't exactly it's not likely a divorce in the Roman Catholic Church it's an annulment I mean if you're if you're a person of power and prestige you can get an annulment in the Roman Catholic I mean who was, the, who was our governor, the Republican governor of of, of uh, Michigan, a few heavyset guy a few years ago? I can't think of his name. Engler. Engler. I mean, Engler was married, what, for 20 years? And he got an annulment from the Roman Catholic Church. His first marriage was void, and he married another woman, had twins. you remember that? I mean, he's married to her for 20 years and got an annulment. You know, they don't believe in divorce, but what's the difference? You know, it's, it's an annulment. So it so Henry could have gotten this, but the political situation kept him from getting it, really. I mean, that's why the Pope didn't grant it. So Henry wants this divorce. He can't get it. Uh, Charles had armies that controlled Italy, poised at the gates of the Vatican. So, you know, what can he do here? He can't do it. So he turns to uh, Thomas Cranmer, a lecturer at Cambridge, he suggested that the that, that legal authority was on Henry's side. 
Cranmer was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533. So generally the highest religious official in in uh, the Roman Catholic Church in England was the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, technically it's the Archbishop of Canterbury and Archbishop of York, but really the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the highest religious official under the Pope, Pope is the head of the church, in England, Archbishop of Canterbury. So he's appointed Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, he believes Henry can, can get a divorce. He believes he can dissolve this marriage. And so he promptly declared Henry's marriage to Catherine Null and Void. Henry married Anne Boleyn, who was pregnant with his second child, Elizabeth. So here's Cranmer. He becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. He says, yes, this marriage, I'm declaring this marriage annulled. And this first marriage was no good. And you can, and, and he annuls the marriage in 1533. And uh, Henry has a mistress, uh, Anne Boleyn, his second wife. And so she's pregnant at the time with Elizabeth. So his first child is Mary, from Catherine of Aragon, Mary, later called Bloody Mary. And then his second child is Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I. The second is on the throne now. The first, Queen Elizabeth I, is his second child. And uh, so uh, he marries her, page 28. In 1534, Henry broke with the Roman Catholic Church, setting up the Church of England with the king as its supreme head instead of the Pope. So Henry breaks with the Roman Catholic Church in 1534. He he starts a new church, the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, which is still with us today. In America, it's called the Episcopal Church. So... When America split from England, they technically sort of split, but they're still part of the Anglican community worldwide, the Episcopal Church. So he starts his own church. And instead of the Pope as the head, the king is the head. He is the supreme head of the church. Now, they have now later Elizabeth I changed that title to the supreme governor of the church. So Elizabeth II, the Queen of England today, is the supreme governor of the Anglican Church. And she appoints the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, she doesn't just dream it up on her own, but she takes recommendations. But she really is the head of the church. So there's no separation of church and state in England. Because the queen, the head of the, head of the government, is also really the head of the church, too. So he starts his own, he starts the, he breaks in the Roman Catholic Church. He didn't really do it for religious reasons. Henry really believed the Roman Catholic faith. He had been granted an award just a few years before called the Defender of the Faith Award for defending, writing a book, defending the sacraments of the church. So he didn't really do this for religious reasons. He did it for political reasons. He wanted to marry, he wanted to have a male heir, and he wanted to get a divorce. During his lifetime, the Church of England was basically a Roman Catholic and doctrine with minor reforms. Copies of Coverdale's Bible imported to England included a dedication to Henry VIII. Coverdale's Bible was favored by Queen Anne Boleyn and was allowed in England. Now, from what we understand about history, it's always not our... Anne Boleyn had Protestant ideas. Henry had no Protestant ideas. He hated Luther. 
He hated Luther, but he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. But he didn't hate Luther. He hated the doctrines of Luther. But his his wife, Anne Boleyn, from what we understand, had Protestant uh, thinking and Protestant ideas. So she favored these Protestant ideas. Uh, and so because his Bible was associated with Anne Boleyn, it never gained significance. We're talking about Coverdale's Bible here. And uh, she fell into favor and was executed in 1536. Yes, I'm sorry. Larry, do you have a question? Oh, I'm sorry. Just getting tired there. <laughs> so there, there's Henry. Remember, we got six wives, but we don't have to get through but about three of them here. Uh, four of them in, in our survey here. But So he, his marriage is annulled to Catherine of Aragon, the first wife. His second wife, Anne Boleyn, she's executed for treason. She doesn't produce a male either. She produces Elizabeth, his second child. So he, he has her executed. That brings us to Matthew's Bible, 1537. So we have Coverdale's Bible. Coverdale's Bible is allowed to be sold in England. Now, you know, in 1536, uh, poor Tyndall is executed still. You know, he's even though the Bible is allowed to be now sold in England, 1535. But Henry's just allowing this because he thinks, well, that makes us different from the Roman Catholic Church. That makes us distinct. We have our English Bible rather than the Latin. So that's why he's doing it. It's not because he thinks, hey, it'd be a great idea for everybody to read the Bible in English. It's all political for him. Thomas Matthew, 1537. This was the pen name of John Rogers. He was also one of Tyndall's assistants. So Tyndall had assistants. Coverdale, John Rogers. Uh, here's John. In 1537, he produced his version called Matthew's Bible, printed in Antwerp. The title page reads, The Bible, that's what it actually says right there, The Bible, which is all the Holy Scripture in which are contained the Old and New Testament, truly and purely translated English Bible of Thomas Matthew. He used this pseudonym, apparently, because, you know, they'll put you, they'll burn you at the stake. They burn Tyndall at the stake, you know, so I'm not using my real name here. I'm using this Matthew Bible. Page 29, it was a combination of Tyndall and Coverdale's work. Rogers made use not only of Tyndall's translation of the Pentateuch and Jonah, as had Coverdale, but he had the Joshua, the Chronicles, which Tyndall had left unpublished. The rest of the Old Testament was from Coverdale's Bible. He didn't know Hebrew either. <clears throat> so he had to use what Coverdale had translated from the Latin in his Bible. Here's the Gospel of Mark. No verse divisions. You've got paragraph divisions. Here's John 3.16 in Matthew's Bible. Here's the Archbishop of Canterbury again. Thomas Cranmer had wanted to get an English Bible officially licensed by the king. Now Cranmer, the Archbishop, has Protestant ideas. Henry VIII doesn't. But Thomas Cranmer does. Remember, he's the guy who got this divorce annulled. This marriage annulled. He has Protestant ideas, but he can only push them so far, you know. He wanted to get the English Bible officially licensed by the king through the influence of Thomas Cromwell, 
Cromwell's another guy with Protestant ideas who was the king's chief minister. A real license was attained for Matthew's Bible as well as the 1537 edition of Coverdale's Bible. Coverdale's 1537 became the first whole English Bible to be printed in England. Tyndall's New Testament had been printed in England in the year before, so in 1537 there were two English Bibles, Coverdale's and Matthew's, circulating in England. So around him, Henry had these Protestant guys, but he had Roman Catholic guys too who were influencing. But the Archbishop of Canterbury, Canterbury, Thomas Cromwell, it's a very interesting period historically. PBS had a great series called Wolf Hall. Anybody see Wolf Hall? If you ever get a chance to see that, you might want to watch it. It's all about Thomas uh, Thomas Cromwell. And actually, in the, in the PBS series, they have him sitting there while they have the scene there where the guy's painting this picture of him, this famous picture of him. But he had these Protestant sympathies too. Now, he eventually gets gets killed too. Protestants don't last long, too long under Henry VIII, too much, you know. He's he's not much of a Protestant, but he's going along with it because he wants this just church distinct from the Church of England. So now we have the English Bible in England, which can be read and sold and printed, but there's still a lot of people who are opposed to that, as we'll see. Alright, let's stop there for this time. We'll pick up with the next Bible, which is the Great Bible, 1539, next time. Thanks a lot.